Hey, people, people, it's time for the Capital P and People Work podcast, where we discuss the intersection of people, wellness, and the future of work. I'm your host, Gabby Lubin, CEO and founder of Spark This Day, the platform that makes people first a reality. And I'm excited to welcome you to season two. This season, we're diving in with experts to go deep on specific topics within people work. What does it really take to run an effective, meaningful team? We'll find out together, and I can't wait to discover what we'll learn today. Before we head in, don't forget to take a listen for our offer at the end of this podcast. We'd love to gift you 60 days on Spark this day, but you have to get to the end of the podcast first. Let's get into it. Yeah? Today, I am excited to be joined by Nick Jesta. He is the Senior Director of People Analytics and Corporate Marketing Analytics for Cloud Software Group and has served as the Head of People Analytics for Tibco Software prior to their merger into Cloud Software Group. Nick has a background in data science and started out in the finance field before landing in HR. He has a passion for turning insights into strategic action and uses analytics to inform strategies in employee retention, engagement, and wellness diversity and belonging, talent acquisition, and workforce planning. He has spoken at numerous conferences for people analytics and HR, talking about the value of a data-driven HR department, so excited to dig into data, empowering HR business partners to be more data-informed, and the impact of volatile economics on employee retention. Oh, so many juicy words we put in there. I love it. (laughs) Nick, I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So before we dig into all things data, which is where we're headed today, I'd love to hear about you as a human. Tell us a little about yourself. Yeah, I'm, I live in Denver, Colorado. I've been here for six years. I went to uh, undergrad and, and, and started my whole career journey on the East Coast and finally was able to come back to this beautiful sunny state. So happy to be here. Um, Believe it or not, data is not just what I do in my professional life. Unfortunately, I'm a nerd through and through. So uh, I'm a big like stats guy. So sports stats, I just, I think my wife is absolutely frustrated with how much I bring up numbers to talk about just about anything and everything. Um, But aside from that, you know, being in the state of Colorado, big hikers, love to be outside. We have two Huskies. So we're, we're plenty active if we're not pulling our hair out from, from having two Huskies. But yeah, that's kind of our story. Amazing. And I imagine a lot of hair that's been shed around the house too, because oh, huskies, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But they're beautiful. So it's all worth it. <laughs> Most days, that's absolutely true. There you go. And then I would love to hear what your capital P word is for today. How are you thinking about people work right now, Nick? Yeah, that's a good question, especially as I think about data in the sense of people work. I always think about progress versus perfection. So I'm going to go, I'm going to use that first. Uh, you know, data is imperfect. It always has been. And in most cases, you're trying to get it to better and better ends, meaning you want to you want to answer more questions. You want to answer deeper questions, better questions. But as long as you're making progress, you're getting somewhere. So I think it's about progress and positioning. Ooh, there's another one, positioning. We haven't had that word on capital P yet either. Love <laughs> it. <laughs> um, well, fantastic. We heard a little bit in your bio about like what your career trajectory has kind of been, but we'd love to dig a little bit deeper. How have you found yourself today also in a merger? Um, how have you found yourself getting into data and into the HR space? Yeah. So interesting. When I, uh, my whole 
start of my career journey was in data analytics uh, and business intelligence, probably before it was largely called business intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I worked for in finance and then the healthcare sector, looking at kind of just data for mental health, actually, um, and, and practitioners. Um, I had gotten a call from now a very close friend and mentor, but uh, a recruiter at the time had said, hey, do you want to talk to our head of HR? She's looking to bring on a data scientist in HR. I was like, I don't know what that means. And I certainly don't want to work in human resources. That is not where I was trained. Uh, but they were really persistent. And I'm glad that they were um, because that was kind of the inflection point where I started looking at data through a people lens. And my journey ever since then has really been, what can we do here? And you know, for the longest time, the data, quote unquote, data czars at the company is finance, right? Or sales. And I will argue increasingly more and more that that hat is moving to HR and should move to HR because we're people first and most businesses are people first. And that's their biggest asset and their biggest driver of value. Hmm. Where, so when did that shift happen for you when you realized there was uh, this wealth of need for data in HR? Yeah, good question. I think what was so nice about the start of that journey is when I said, what does data mean in HR back to the, the recruiter and eventually to my mentor, who was the chief people officer? She was like, oh, we don't know either. <laughs> and that, that white space was fantastic because it was kind of greenfield. It was open. Hey, you tell us and we don't know, but let's figure it out together. And that's not to say I was a pioneer. By no means, there were plenty of people doing it. Mean, Google's done people data in analytics since the early 2000s, maybe before. Um, but for a small company, they were only 4,000 people to say we want to do data-driven human resources and be more uh, data-driven our people practices. I was like, all right, well, let's figure that out. I don't know what it means either, but I certainly know data. And they came from a place of knowing people. I came from a place of knowing data and we both moved towards each other. So now I know people better and they know data better. And that's kind of the journey I've been on uh, in my career and where I think there's so much value. That's fantastic. And I think there's a lot of really similar what you were saying, magical things that can happen when you actually don't know a space specifically, because you go in with a little bit of naivete, you Mm -hmm. ask, you know, if you, if you have that psychological safety in the space that you're, you're working in, you can ask the right questions. You can really get down and dirty and like discover some things that you would have not discovered if you had been very familiar with that topic what a dream to be able to fail, right? So fail and fail fast. And that was the opportunity I was given, but really it's the core of good data and good business intelligence, whether it's marketing or HR or whatever, because data analytics is supposed to be about curiosity. Yes, you're answering problems, but there's not a roadmap to how to answer the problems. As you get more clarity, you start to figure out your recipe, but you have to fail. You have to fail often. You have to try new things and try and answer things in a different way because that's how you make progress. When do you think um, data and HR space became more normalized? When was that shift? And if if you if you know the read on on the industry, why do you think that happened? Good question. Um, I think so. Finance in most companies was kind of the the end all be all for the longest time, and to some extent still is. And this is not to disparage finance. I have so many wonderful people I work with in the financial field. Um, They're and critical. The department. Yeah, F- we P&A. need them. FPNA, my goodness. Um, <laughs> yep. And and really, the thing is not to supplant FPNA as kind of the data driver of a business. It's to be a partner in that sense because they really understand the financials. We understand the people. Can we combine it? Mm-hmm. I would say coming out of the uh, 2008-2009 recession where uh, finance failed, um, you know, at a macro scale and in many cases a micro scale. 
I think that there was this, let's get other angles on this. How do we tell a better story? And as we become more and more um, people oriented in our businesses, less and less products, less and less widgets, we're more about service and, and delivery. Um, I think that was a big part of it. And mm -hmm. this whole surge that we've all seen, whether it's in employee engagement or wellness or diversity and inclusion, just to be more data-driven in those spaces, because headcount and attrition always been data-driven. But these other kind of epochs within HR need to show progress. And increasingly, right, you've had diversity and inclusion, just to pick on it for a moment, they come in, they're doing so much, and then the business is starting to say, well, show me the proof. And the proof is there, but they're now turning to data to show that proof and to show that demonstrable, amazing value that they drive. You have to find the ROI of the work that you're doing, especially when, unfortunately, in HR, it is not a revenue-generating source of the business. It, I do think some companies are starting to look at it with a different lens versus like the money suck of the company. Now we're kind of thinking about it as, hey, like this is the necessary thing that we, the foundation per se, not just like the paperwork and the logistics, Absolutely. but it's the foundation of how companies work um, and should work. But there's been a recent shift in, in, in seeing it as a more important part of a company and starting to actually value that data even more than before, I think, like last three years. I agree. And I might not, I might not go so far as to say HR is a profit center, but I might. <laughs> it's certainly a value driver. I think more yeah. than ever we're recognizing it as one. And it is no longer a cost center, right? It's not just some sink for for uh for finances. But I think we can drive real value and we can show it. What's the most valuable data point to show that? Good question. My goodness, there's so many. So uh, let me take one example. When we started off building here at Tibco before we merged, so working at Tibco Software, come in, come in a little bit unproven. They're trying to build their people practice in the analytics space. Let's get more data. Let's try and make a shift. We met with the CFO. We met with a number of our chief executives, and we started to look at it through their lens. So... We can say that vacancies cost money. There's so much research prior that prior that um, you know somebody leaves, there's a cost to that vacancy that's two times salary, whatever. We did similar exercises by saying, okay, we did an engagement survey. Forty percent of people are saying that they're under-engaged. I won't even say disengaged because some people are just under-engaged. And we sit with the CFO, and his team makes plenty of assumptions. FPNA makes assumptions every day, and we say, okay, if somebody's under-engaged. Are they delivering 100% of the value? So you pay them X amount of money and are they delivering the amount of value that multiplier if they're under-engaged? And chances are, ours certainly did, but chances are most CFOs will say, no, if they're under-engaged, they're not. They'll say, okay, fair enough. So let's be very conservative. Let's say they're only driving 90% of value if they're under-engaged. And I would argue that in some cases, there's 50% of value, 30% of value, in some cases, no value, negative value, if people are disengaged. Very conservatively, let's say there's just a 10% sink to being under-engaged. If we can multiply that by their salary and then the cost of productivity, we can show there's X amount of dollars that you're not capitalizing on because people are not excited about coming to work to every day. They're not excited about being here. They're burnt out even. And if we can start to shift that and one size HR is over, thank goodness, one size HR doesn't work anymore. Mm. You know, One size does not fit all. So we have to tailor it. You know, I, I used to joke because the CFO challenged back, what does engagement mean? I said, well, if you have 100 people in a room, you have 100 different definitions of engagement. And you should. 
everybody is engaged differently. So how do we customize it to them to make them feel engaged that they want to give their all most days at work? Because that does drive value. Easy stuff to do, right? And certainly, like I said, you have to make some assumptions, but finance makes assumptions, sales makes assumptions. Yeah. So bring those assumptions. Don't be scared of those assumptions for, for data and HR. And you can be conservative in your estimates and still make a pretty profound point. Hmm. Hmm. So talk to me, let's rewind a little bit. Cause I, I, I'm really curious to hear about your journey and data sure. essentially. Um, cause I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned with either just how far we've come, but also if someone is newer to this and is either trying to like rock the boat in a way and rethink about how they're thinking about data, this might be helpful. So talk to me about the the moment when you came into, I can't remember what the company's name was, maybe you didn't share, um, and we're doing data and HR for the very first time. If you remember, like, where did you start? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. When I first came into a company that said, hey, we want to do data-driven HR. And I said, well, what does that mean? They didn't know. I didn't know. I sort of said that. Um, we started, I think my first slide deck was 120 slides. It was like, <laughs> let's look at absolutely everything. Um, let's <laughs> overcook the books here. Um, there was just so much. And so we started at bare basics, right? And bare basics are fine. I would actually argue that too often people trying to get started in data in HR, uh, get too sophisticated too quickly. What I mean by mm -hmm. that is they're like, Hey, should we predict things? It's like, don't predict things, get a sense of your landscape first. Um, so I, we came in and we looked at very simple things, headcount, headcount by group, but then think about something as simple as attrition. Who's leaving? What percent of your employee force is leaving? Very simple metric. But what if you cut that by everything you can possibly cut that by? Meaning, can I look at attrition by the different levels I have in the org? Can I look at attrition by the different functions and business areas I have in the org? Can I look at it by different compensation positioning? Can I look at it by people that have been promoted recently? Can I look at it by new hires? Can I look at it by diversity? As you start to look at something just so simple like attrition through 200 different lenses, that is very quickly, I'm going to snap my fingers, but very quickly shows you what's actionable. It's a heat map. Where do you have really healthy retention? Where do you have really aggressive attrition? And by the way, it's not to just narrow your sights to say, oh, where do we have bad attrition? What's going on there? I also have directed our business partners and a lot of our leaders to say, pay attention to where you're keeping people to. Mm -hmm. Because what's the lessons over there? And you might be able to, that's the, the beauty of being able to have data partnered with business partner enablement is so wonderful because business partners add context such necessary context to data and they can come in and say, oh, that group, that group is really, you know, well-retained because their leader checks in with them every single day and they're doing X, Y, Z, things you'll never capture in a data set, right. but you'll narrow your focus and you'll start to ask the right questions and you'll find out if some of those techniques can be scaled to your other groups. And so that's yeah. something so simple. Yeah. I mean, first of all, that sounds, I'm like getting excited being you sitting down for the first time to be able to take a look at all that data, like how cool is it to be able to see trends? Trends are the most magical thing that you can walk away with because it provides insights to flailing around, right? Absolutely. <laughs> which, which oftentimes we unfortunately are still flailing and we don't have the either right data. We don't have the time. We don't have someone who's dedicated to it. It's really hard to do. Um, some of the work that our company has been doing is uh, also sitting down and looking at the 
level of burnout versus well-being in staff anonymously for employers, but um, looking at it by team level, um, time zone, gender, race, even for which workplace wellness initiatives they've been um, participating in. It's really, it's putting on my nerd glasses and you know, it's not nerdy. It's just like great, but it's, it's cool to see. It's really cool to see. Well, and think about that. So staying with something simple like attrition, but going into Mm -hmm. something like wellness, Mm -hmm. we've looked at things like, Hey, is your supervisor in your system, whatever system it is, is your supervisor in the same time zone you are? How many time zones removed are they? And does that impact your attrition? Because then is there an expectation? Oh, my supervisor's three hours ahead of me. Now I feel like I have to work really early because they're up really early my time. So I'm now getting up and, and getting started at 5 a.m. And does that cause me burnout over time? If my supervisor is in the same time zone, my attrition risk is less. And so you can look at things that, that creates this interplay of just about anything. And that's still staying in just a very secluded box of staff turnover and scale that now to uh, time to fill, which I hate as a metric, but think about it in the recruiting space or think about it in the wellness and, and hiring space is just as far as like volume coming in. I mean, you can cut these so many different ways and look at some of your critical metrics, but with so many different lenses. So now you are at a point in time where you're having to rethink again, because there's been this merging of companies. First of all, talk to us about the companies. What are the company sizes? What's the context behind it? And then what like what's going on with this merger yeah so mergers are really exciting and from a data perspective it kind of it's it's upheaval and i don't mean that in a bad way although it certainly doesn't take away from the chaos um but i came from a company tipco software was uh four thousand people merged with a company that's double our size actually a little over double our size wow so, in fact, analytics took a big backseat to start with, and it, nece- it had to because your building blocks are data elements. And when you come together, data taxonomies are different. Mm. Yeah, some fields are not the same. Now, if you want to show legacy data, you talk about trends. Hey, you want to go year over year? Wait a minute. We were organized differently. How do you do that? So how do, what's the secret sauce to get these things to look similarly where you can tell a cohesive story? And for the first, with my team, the first few months was not about analytics at all, barely even something like attrition, barely even headcount. It was, this data is messy by the very nature of us squashing it together in such a tight time frame. So how do we start to improve the data quality so we can answer more meaningful questions? What that means is it felt like I was back on my first day doing people analytics, answering basics. And luckily I'd been through it to say, hey, basics aren't bad. Basics is where we're at right now. Right. And that's okay. Now, a lot of the priorities have shifted. And so we're looking at coming together. The metrics have shifted from like engagement or wellness, some things that both companies were looking at prior to merging. And now it's, hey, we came together. What's the span of control for these teams? Do we have, are we optimized? Do we have teams doing duplicative work? Do we have uh, groups that are very siloed? Do we have groups that are not talking to one another? Uh, what about locations? Where are we located? And do we need to have any co-location? And can we optimize offices and things like that? So the the, the business problems have changed. Um, mm. So a lot of the things I know we'll get back to, because it's the very nature of what nature our function does, has taken the back seat to just focus on data organization more than anything and data quality. And how long has it been since the merger? Um, we, so at the point of today, uh, five, five months actually from like our system systems coming together, only three. So we're still pretty infantile in making these things talk to one another and getting them back, back on the horse, so to speak. Mm. 
What an interesting experience to be a part of. And it really is. It's fascinating because you get back to the basics of data. And one of the biggest things I, I had a boss um, when I joined that said, oh man, you know, we've been through our system implementations. We've implemented, we implemented Workday at that point in time. He was like, we've been through our system implementations. We've done so much. And yet I wish that we had hired you well before that because it'd be nice. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you bring a data scientist or a data analyst and you already have everything set up and you say, okay, tell us, tell us what's going on in the business. And if you have them there to start with, you might have better data organization. You might have better data cleanliness. You might just have a better data strategy for what to collect and when to collect it. So they did not have a data scientist on their team. Not not to start with. And so like Workday was already implemented by the time I came in. And that's not a bad thing. Like the best time to start is uh, yesterday. You know, the second best time yep. starts now, right? Of course. Um, that kind of thing, that, that cliche definitely holds true. Um, but when I started, it was you now getting a sense of what data do we have available? I wasn't part of what data to make available. So I'm just trying to get familiar with the landscape, similar to what's happening now with the merger. Yeah. But you also, you get asked like, hey, I would really like to know about uh, engagement or who has skills because I want to do a skills inventory and I want to look at like upskilling and cross-skilling and these kind of things. It's like, great idea. That's a really compelling analysis. We don't have any skills documented to speak of because we didn't make that part of our system strategy when we implemented. So they bring a business problem and we say, cool, we'll add that to our roadmap. We start to collect those data elements and then we are able to deliver that, but then we can't deliver it for months. Hmm. If you're part of the strategy to start with, then you're ahead of the eight ball. You know what I mean? So you can you start collecting much earlier. So now I want to ask them like, maybe they're not tough questions, but I want them to be a little bit tougher than they've been. <laughs> Bring it. So it. I, I, you know, one of the reasons why our company has come into existence is because not everyone is truthful on HR surveys or not everyone really can speak their truth to their managers. Um, there's a lot of hiding that exists in the workplace simply because we have to protect ourselves because we are, that's just how we exist, right? And um, work doesn't necessarily take our entire selves as our home life might. So Talk to me about some data points that like you've either had to make huge changes with because you assumed it would tell you the story, but it actually told you a completely different story or uh, a data point that you're like, I wish we had this, but I still haven't really figured out how to pinpoint it yet because something's in the way. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you kind of teed it up, but. <laughs> engagement surveys are imperfect by the very nature yeah. of some people saying, I don't believe this is confidential. I don't believe it's anonymous. Um, in some cases, you just can't report on it because it's too small of a group. There's limitations to something like engagement surveys. There's certainly limitations to exit interviews. We've heard that all day. That's why the big push for like stay interviews is more mm -hmm. commonplace mm -hmm. now, right? Um, but it's really limiting. So I think engagement's really limiting from that data set alone. And I'll say that because you can bring up an engagement survey and show, hey, you got greens everywhere. Everyone seems really happy. And yet you have a nutrition problem or yet you can't hire or, you know, all this volatility, these other these other signs, which just actually is is helpful in its own right. Because if I see things that should go in the same direction, going in opposite directions, then we can call out and say, hey, I think you have a trust gap or I think that there's th so there's things that we can call out and make insights. 
in the same way that if you have outliers, a lot of people write off outliers. I think outliers are super interesting because mm. why are they outliers? Um, same thing with engagement surveys that tend to say something that is not showing up anywhere else. I like to call that out as like, ooh, we might have, we might have an issue here. Um, but when it comes to engagement, I like to look at it through a few lenses. And one of the things I try to do often with my team is post them. How do we, how would we measure engagement if you couldn't do a survey? What does that look like? You know, and there's some answers like, well, people would stay. Sure. How do we go a little bit deeper? And so we look for things like discretionary effort. What are people doing that they wouldn't have to do, but they do? And how do we measure it if we, if we could? That signifies to me, and it's just one window. It's not a catch-all. Nothing in data is a catch-all. What's an example of that? Yeah. So we have um, some learning and development resources uh, here, right? They're optional, completely optional. Uh, it's all, it's for your own career. You can kind of do it on your own. We found, and it's it's a bell curve. We find that people that over-index on those resources are probably not busy enough and don't have a lot going on. And then we might see them leave because they're bored every day. But we find that people that are engaging with those on a monthly basis, taking some courses, certainly actually more than taking or, or logging in, finishing a course, the group that's finishing a course completely optional is much less likely to turn over they have much higher performance ratings. And those things can be leading and misleading. Um, mm -hmm. But it says to us that these people that are doing beyond what is required of them because they want to are probably engaged, probably. And if we can load that into our engagement survey as one of those tokens that you can kind of report on to say, hey, here's a group, here's an identifier. We see that show up in the engagement surveys as well. So the people that are sh telling us implicitly through their behavior that they are engaged, that they want to be here, that they're doing certain things to advance themselves while they're here, have higher engagement results than those that aren't. Mm. That's one example. Another one would be like, hey, if you do time tracking, we don't at my current company. The previous one that I did, we would you kind of literally had to do a timesheet every day for billability and all that fun stuff. Like the client work, you had to bill everything. And so internally, it was just a similar process. We found that people um, that were having too much beyond a 40-hour week were at risk of burning out, especially if that was over long, uh, like a longitudinal period of time. You could study it. How did you assess burnout, though, is my question to that, too. Well, good question. So similarly, we would package that as a token. We could put underlying engagement surveys. Mm -hmm. uh, their percent over a 40-hour week on average. And so... Groups, by the way, groups that had just 5% over, 5 to 10% over a normal week actually had higher engagement results. <laughs> and how we read that is because, hey, I wrapped up. You're my boss. I'm finishing up my day. The clock strikes five if you're kind of a standard nine to five place. But I'm working on something and I care about it and it's compelling. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to finish this. So I stay 30 minutes more because I care about it. And again, these are stereotypes. They're catch-alls. This is imperfect, like with anything. Um, as long as there's no fear-based or reprisal that's keeping you there, a little bit mm -hmm. of extra time might mean that you're saying, Hey, I, you know, I, I like this work and I want to get it to completion today, or at least to a good stopping point. Mm -hmm. Whereas people that are saying like, and the clock is at five, I'm done. You know, that's not a bad thing. People have boundaries and they should, but it may signify that you're not as engaged by your current employer and the current role or whatever mm -hmm. the fit is. Yep. Now, when we saw it go beyond 10% is when we saw it go in the opposite direction, similar to if you were not doing any time at all. It's those folks that are saying like, oh, I'm being, you know, I'm spending way too much time here. I'm not able to create any discernible balance, perhaps. And that drives attrition again. It drives performance reduction, those kind of things. So we look at it in both ways, discretionary effort. And there's windows into that in a number of places. It differs for every organization. 
But ultimately, the challenge is, is there something available to your employees in any dimension that they don't have to do, but they could do? And you have insight into that. That is incredible. I think that is really, really valuable, specific data that I have not heard at most organizations or that most organizations aren't aware of. Are we shouting this to the rooftops? <laughs> are are we writing a study about it? Or is this really something that's been staying internal? And are we shouting it out now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe a little bit. And I'll tell you, you know, you can create these. So, you know, create a uh, mental wellness page on your company internet that people can go and engage with. Give them resources. Are they using those resources? Then that's a signal to you that, well, it could be a few signals, but one of those is they're engaging with things that they don't have to, but they are. That's a mm -hmm. good sign, at least from an engagement perspective. And that's just one narrow window. But we, we anytime we can measure something like that, we want to measure something like that. And ultimately, through the whole lens of ethics and privacy, first and foremost. So my mm -hmm. whole charter for my team is don't just be curious for the sake of curiosity, because that's dangerous with people data. Uh, you know, there's a stereotype that gets attached to people analytics. In some cases, it's very well deserved. That's like big brothery. Mm -hmm. And my biggest ask for my team is don't do anything that would make you feel like you wouldn't want it to happen if you were an employee and not sitting on this team, right? Do it for the betterment of people. Do it so that we can see what resources are being used, what are not, so we can sunset certain ones, move that budget to give them additional resources in different areas. If there's an engagement problem, let's talk about that with the business partners. We can figure out what to change, not specifics, not, hey, Nick is disengaged. Let's get him out of here. Uh, before he leaves on his own. That's certainly not what I would advocate ever. And that's never what we look at. So it's engagement in buckets and in neighborhoods rather than engagement for a specific individual. Because that's still actionable and you can take action and, and make things better for, for a cluster of employees without invading somebody's privacy. Yeah, privacy is incredibly important and has been highlighted more and more these days. Yeah. For good reason. <laughs> Unfortunately, it has to yeah. be for good reason because there's been a lot of negative things that have happened. Um, but it's interesting because I was um, I went to South by Southwest this year um, in Austin, which was really fun. And I cannot remember which of the sessions shared this information, but Gen Z specifically is more comfortable with giving away their data, essentially, the amount that they're spending on social media, it's just, it's a kind of given for them to be able to say, yep, I know you're going to take some of it, but I'm going to still participate here, right? I'm curious to hear from you, like, that's just one snippet of obviously how Gen Z is um, a different generation than all the other generations, but especially when it comes to data and people and attrition, like, how... How are you all thinking about this this newer generation? If you are, and if not, like, what do you think some changes might be to when they get to be a larger part of the workforce soon? I hesitate to be too, um, I guess, prescriptive on Gen Z because there was so much about millennials when millennials entered the workforce that, oh, millennials leave at accelerated rates and, oh, millennials are behaving like X, Y, Z. Um, <laughs> and, and I... You know, when we studied millennials early on, because that was the predominant workforce that was growing when I started in people analytics, they behaved like Gen Y when Gen Y was their age. Hmm. So I think from like a, a standard, like, hey, are they staying with the company? How long are they staying with the company? All that I think is more age reliant and less generation reliant because they don't have families yet. So you're more willing to change jobs. You're more adapt uh, adaptive to ch trying a new employer. 
that changes as you start to have families. Now, the difference for millennials that I think Gen Z is going to continue to capitalize on is just technological comfortability. So it's hard to measure from a specific HR perspective, but take something like using uh, chat GPT or something to augment their jobs. I think more than ever, there's a comfort with doing that, that you wouldn't have seen in Gen Y or uh, baby boomers, anything like that. I think that there's just such a shift to be more comfortable technologically um, and how to augment your job with kind of these different resources. From a data perspective, certainly they'll tell us more. They also expect to see more value. If they're going to tell you something, they want something. So take something like TikTok. I'll give you data on TikTok, but it's because TikTok gives you something back constantly, serotonin boosts constantly. So if you're going to give data to your company, uh, your company better be doing something for you with it. And I, am, I, I, I believe in that, first of all. I don't think that's just a Gen Z thing. I think that if you're going to give data to your company, make sure your company is doing something to action on it and make your experience better, or it's kind of a waste of your time. And I say that as a data person. Yeah, I I think that's super, super important to highlight. It, you cannot just ask for things and not give things in return. It has to be a reciprocal relationship in some way, shape, or form. It has we've, to be. We've even advocated for simplifying like our engagement surveys when they were done because we would, it was 50 questions. You can't even act on 50 things. If you got feedback back on those 50 things, you can't do that in one year. Simplify. Knowing the constraints of the business are only going to be able to action on two, three, four things maybe, and maybe that'll change within certain departments. They can do a little bit more, um, but simplify because you're asking so much. And then people are going to say, I told you all this stuff and nothing's changed year over year. Well, of course not. You've asked for way too much. You can't even do too, that much. That's not a business. That's not a business problem or a transparency problem. That's a overcommitment problem. Yeah. And so it's, I think, really streamline what you're doing for those younger generations and make sure that they're driving value back to them. I think it's just super critical to engage with them and make data meaningful. Otherwise, they're not going to give it to you, nor should they. Um, whereas conversely, Gen Y would give you more data, less skeptically, and they wouldn't even, you know, they're not seeing as much day over day to change. So I think that it's, an, it's a weird onus. They'll give you more, they expect more. And that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. It's holding uh, companies accountable for the things that they should have been held accountable to before. <laughs> Absolutely. And those demands are yeah. changing. You know, uh, there's been, yep. and this is again, blanket statement. I think for the longest time, we thought that everything would be six, fixed with salary, right? Give people mm. more money. And with millennials, it was like, give people more money and flexibility. And now I think with Gen Z, it's kind of can go across the board and they'll tell you, but then act on it. You know, some of them are going to be driven and engaged by money and they're kind of coin operated, not in a disparaging way. I think a lot of people are coin operated and that's their engagement driver. And that's really all that they should expect from an employer and, and vice versa. But some people are going to say, nope, I want meaningful work. I want boundaries. I want flexibility. I want you to respect my time. I want good benefits. And that's all fine. But listen to your employees and they'll tell you. Yeah, I think that's a good reminder. And you said this earlier, but it's just so important to remember that companies are unique, organizations are unique. You have to think locally about how you're supporting what you're doing, how you're interacting, how you're even getting data, I would say. It's different from organization to organization. And um, <laughs> just funny when we're talking about the political landscape and how local um, has maybe benefited and not benefited <laughs> us at the same time. So we won't dive into that conversation, but um, I think it's, it is really important though, to, to remember to focus on the people that are in front of you. And as time is, 
you know, as companies grow literally and having more individuals in the company or the organization and or as the years um, tick away, there is going to be a change in what people are asking for. And you got to have your ear to the ground in some way. Well, and I'll tell you, when we started doing analytics, like curiosity takes over because it wants to. So you want to ask more questions. You want to dive in with data more than you ever have. Of course, I won't say don't do that. Some people may tell you no. So what we started to do is we want to ask more detailed questions that needed more data or what I might call more invasive data. We had this thing that we called an incubator. I think we called it People Analytics Lab. I don't remember, but it was an open invitation that basically said, you don't have to participate in this. This is our intention. We want to ask you a question every day about your engagement, or we want to ask you how you're feeling with your boss every day. And it's not going to go out to everybody. You have to opt in. And if you opt in, you get to be a part of the study, and we'll tell you exactly what we're finding and seeing. Cool. So we could ask questions that were very specific and that needed more data than we could ever get away with asking everybody, nor should we. Yeah. But then we could come in, that kind of becomes like a case study that we could then hopefully scale as long as it was representative and there was good enough demographic mix. But that was usually true. And then it was something that we could bring back to the HR team or the leadership to implement change. I mean, it's kind of great also to be able to build with more people that allow, that brings people into the actual solution. And at the end of the day, that is what building a company is all about, building an organization. It's asking more people to be a part of the solution, not just having this hierarchy of, of choices and, you know, voluntelling people is oh, <laughs> what we used to use that phrase. It was a fun phrase. Um, Nick, I'm really curious though, is there a kind of, is there a data point that you haven't really been able to land yet that you're super curious about, but you just don't really know how to get there? Yeah, good question. I think that's something, you know, going back to wellness or engagement, both of those, you have windows into it, right? But it's just like if you were going to tour a house, you're on the real estate market, you want to tour a house, and the real estate agent said, cool, you can look through the windows. It's like, yeah, it's not, that's, that helps, but it's not perfect. I would love something for engagement or wellness that lets us see the floor plan, that lets us walk in and, and take a look at the house, if you know what I mean. So, following that metaphor, we, we look too often for the windows and we hope that it gives us a good enough picture. But it's just such, it's such an important metric. Uh, it's such an important metric to be able to talk about employee wellness and how people are feeling. It's such a driver of retention and performance and productivity and engagement and the list goes on. And yet, Everything we ask is going to come from surveys. It's just a little bit obfuscated depending on the trust that you have in your organization or a handful of other things. So it's limiting. I would love to have a better grasp on measuring that more meaningfully and more moment to moment. That That is an incredible analogy. Um, I really, really like thinking about um, the floor plan versus looking into the window. And I think, you know, as someone who is... Um, we're not going to say wellness expert, but who's in the wellness field and who is thinking about data and people analytics specifically in this space, trying to solve that problem. Um, it's really challenging because oftentimes people themselves don't fully know where they are on that spectrum, right? So there's this element of self-awareness mm -hmm. that needs to be present in order to have that accurate data. And, um, and, and it's, it's how, it's kind of like what you're saying, like, how do we, how do we 
not have it rely on someone understanding where they are on the scale of I'm feeling really great to I'm feeling really burnt out. How do we actually understand without them having to identify that where they are acting, where they're behaving? Because the behaviors are really what actually indicate what what level of wellness we're at. Um, and I can talk about that because I've burned out multiple times <laughs> and I know what my triggers are. You just, you have to start knowing that, but not all adults or people know that for themselves. Absolutely. It's why I think the frontier of data, obviously it's always been quantitative. You capture these things, you ask people to talk about their engagement on a numerical scale. It's valuable. It gives you some insights. It is actionable in many cases. And yet the frontier is qualitative data the more and more analysts can get comfortable with qualitative data and harnessing the power of qualitative data, the better they will be. Um, and it's something I say for my team too, because there's so much value to think about engagement survey. How many times do you hear like, yeah, the, the results were good. The comments were fantastic. Of course yeah. they were because it's the voice of the employee, just like you do a voice of the customer for marketing. What is the voice of the employee? What are they saying? And if you yeah. start to unpack that and there's tools more increasingly more and more tools uh, to do text analysis and thematic analysis and sentiment analysis. And it's, they're amazing and there's more to come, but qualitative data harness it. It's so valuable. Yeah. Amazing. Well, this has been a really wonderful and interesting conversation that I think brought us into spaces. I didn't expect, I didn't expect to have as many aha moments. So thank you for that. Thank you for that gift. Um, I hope people who are listening also have a few of those. Nick, if people are interested in learning more about how you do this, what you're doing, any of that, where can they find you? Uh, find me on my LinkedIn, please. And for better or worse, I will always have a conversation um, You know, on, on LinkedIn. And sometimes my wife's like, can you get off your computer? I love to have conversations. So please, if you want to geek out with me about data, about your organization, or you just want to think philosophically about all organizations, come find me. Let's have a conversation. We'll grab a coffee uh, virtually if that's what it takes. But I, I love to continue conversations like this. You're doing some really awesome work, Nick. It's really cool to hear about it. And um, shout out to your organizations to helping make that happen. Um, I hope you all keep finding more interesting things and maybe publish it one day. You're finding maybe things too. just like Deloitte and McKinsey are in all their work. So could share it with the world. We have some fun ones. A few analysts on my team have published. We've published a few times, but just take us, check it, take us a, a look at us and we'll, yeah, let's continue the conversation. There you go. I guess I didn't do my research, so you're doing it. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. That was a fabulous conversation, fam. I'm so glad that you joined us all the way through. Before you head out, make sure to consider, what's one takeaway that I can implement this month? There's always something. If you're wondering what it takes to be people first, take a look at sparkthisday.com or hop over to sparkthisday.com slash design partner to experience what Spark This Day has to offer. We look forward to joining you on another Capital P and People Work episode soon. Episodes come out every Tuesday and Thursday. And of course, don't forget to share this episode with your favorite people people. We'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.